Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. We all know medicine has changed. How have you changed? If you really, really think about it, who you are today compared to 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Now, the sobering thing is, tell me something new you've learned about each of your family members in the last week. Now, that is a gut punch for most of us because, oh, no, I got her all figured out or him all figured out or, you know, them all figured out early in the journey. And and we fail to update our understandings of each other. And that's when growth stops. Similarly, I would ask people, tell me something new you've learned about each of your partners in practice. Because we found, I'm going to tell you, over the years, there's an integral relationship between interpersonal dynamics in the worst place and interpersonal dynamics at home. That is Dr. Wayne Sotil, the founder of the Sotil Center for Resilience and one of the foremost experts in the world on physician resilience. Now, before you conjure up images of someone lying there on a couch next to Wayne, who's sitting in a dark leather chair, talking about mommy and daddy issues from the past, just know that Wayne's 30 years of focusing on physician resilience, in other words, he gets our world, combined with a Southern Louisiana no BS way of talking, makes for an emotionally powerful and practical approach that in my opinion, is not often found in other psychologists. One of Wayne's great strengths is his deep understanding of the family and relationship dynamics of physicians, something so many of us struggle with. So please listen carefully and reflect on his many important messages. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This eBook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Our guest today is Dr. Wayne Sotil, a clinical psychologist and founder of the Center for Physician Resilience and of the Sotil Center for Resilience in Davidson, North Carolina. Meeting Wayne was one of the many special, fortuitous concatenations that have brought so much to my life. And this particular fortuity was delivered to me by my longtime great friend, Dr. Kevin Lobdell of Atrium Health. I had asked Kevin to be part of the newly formed Society of Thoracic Surgeons Wellness Task Force, and he immediately made it clear that it was essential that Dr. Sotil needed to be on the task force. Why? Because Wayne is a clinical psychologist who has spent more than 40 years researching resilience and counseling high-performance individuals, couples, and companies with a deep focus on physicians and physician families. It is absolutely no hyperbole to say that Wayne is literally the foremost expert in the world on physician and physician family resilience. Wayne has counseled and coached over 30,000 physicians and their partners and other high performers in his clinical psychology practice. And he has served as a consultant on physician wellness to the American Medical Association for nearly a decade. And he has delivered over 6,000 keynote addresses to professional audiences worldwide 
including invited addresses to many Fortune 500 companies. And if all that isn't enough, Wayne's upbringing in an Italian family housed in a Louisiana hometown with 60% African-Americans that is located nine miles from Cajun villages where only Cajun French was spoken, has all imbued Wayne with a rich appreciation of culture and inculcated him with the value of being interested in anyone's story. Plus, Wayne has leveraged his Southern Cajun experience to his great benefit, his great financial benefit, when he decided to ignore the advice of his Louisiana State University undergraduate psychology professor, who pulled him aside during his sophomore year and lovingly advised, look, Wayne, you're clearly pretty smart, but when you speak, you sound dumb. You need to do something about your accent. Wayne notes that they have remained close for decades and that he delights in pointing out to him that on the lecture circuit, the dumber he sounds, the more money he makes. Wayne, thank you for being such a vital part of the STS Wellness Task Force and for being our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> it's my pleasure, buddy. <laughs> and that's a true, that's a true story, too. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just great. Just great. Of course, you never outlived that South Louisiana. I've lived in beautiful North Carolina for 47 years, counting my training days at Duke or something like 47 years. But when uh, the phone rings, my wife of 44 years, Mary, I says, I can always tell if it's somebody from your family calling. I said, how? She said, your IQ drops 30 points because you drop back. <laughs> <laughs> you lose all the endings of all your, your, all your words. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> well, wait, so can you tell us what was the ignition point that brought you into the world of medical professionals? Well, I, my PhD is in clinical psychology and I specialize um, when I finished uh, um, my PhD, I spent right after the Civil War, I, I specialized in what used to be called medical psychology. That's what brought me to Duke in the Department of Psychiatry, the Division of Medical Psychology. It's now called clinical and health psychology. I was always interested in the psychology of medical care. So short version of the story. Um, I joined the faculty at Wake Forest um, at the medical school there and, and then went into private practice to maintain my affiliation with uh, Wake by being um, uh, sort of a, a go-to place. My wife and I started practice together for medical students and residents from Wake Forest. And then in our practice, we uh, saw almost exclusively patients and clients referred by physicians and physician offices. And then pretty soon, uh, the faculty who sent the students and residents and the private practice docs who were sending the patients started to come to see us. And the short version of the story is at the time, now this was 40 plus years ago, I started reading the literature on the psychology of physicians. And it was a very sparsely populated peer-reviewed literature based on uh, anecdotal observation studies of ends of 20 or 30. And I realized that at that point, we've had over 1,200 physicians and or life mates of physicians as clients or patients over the years. And I say it that way, Michael, because the majority of physicians we've seen um, have been self-referred for the things you would self-refer uh, about for personal growth or leadership development or work-life issues small percentage of a large number is still a large number. And to date, we've had tens of thousands of medical professionals come through our practice. About 15% have been mandated to see us for, you know, various that recovery or charm school or whatever, you know, behavioral issues and, and so forth. I, I don't mean that cynically, but people learning to navigate the way through the, the new normal in, in emerging healthcare. So we realized about 35 years ago, we have more experience privilege, the, and it, we have always counted as a privilege in my group, the, the privilege of medical uh, physicians and medical families trusting us and allowing us private glimpses into their uh, psychosocial underbelly, if you will, than anybody in the world at the time. And at that time, we'd only seen a thousand or so physicians. To date, we've seen, I don't know, countless thousands. We've lost track after around 8,000 so what brought us into this world was physicians invited us into the world. And then friends start referring friends. And this is a recurrent right, message right. we want to talk about. You know, heroes create safe spaces for other people. We wrote that phrase when we were writing about 
what's it like to be physicians in medical families best we could tell. We wrote that phrase in 1990s, late 1990s. It goes that well, the far because yeah, that's that's something I wanted to hone in on. Yeah, yeah, and we'll come to it. But but then with 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 no hubris, we became a safe space for physicians and medical families nationally and internationally, because it's sometimes hard to find people who are not physicians, or in some instances, sometimes hard to find physicians who are respectful of the lifestyle that you guys right. in, uh, live. And so that's what that's what brought me into this. Well, you know, it's such an important niche. Uh, and, you know, having seen a psychologist for, you know, quite some time, a few years, uh, it, it was, it was, it, I learned a lot, but they just really didn't understand my world. Uh, yeah. And, and to have somebody that not only has the expertise in psychology, but really deeply understands our world and the processes that goes on, I think is incredibly important. It's a really... Uh... Listen, I say this with a compassionate heart. People are well-intended. But right. I, I will tell you this about this story. We were invited to keynote the Texas Medical Society once, and that, which is one of the largest medical societies in the country for obvious reasons. It's such a large state. But the, the leaders had to b- adopt a bylaw to amend a previous bylaw that had been inserted about five years prior that stated following the keynote address of a well-intended mental health professional that basically was a shaming message. Mm-hmm. Like if you love your family, you can be home at four o'clock and coach your kids ball games. Yes. The bylaw was adopted. We can never let that message uh, be on the podium again. Our life is difficult enough. And I can't tell you how much in now things have gotten a lot better. And we can talk about how life has, has changed. People have gotten more respectful, but still, one of our punchlines is going to be, man, just like you might get a, a personal trainer or you might get coaching for one thing or the other. If you're interested in playing guitar, get some lessons. That's fun. You know, learning more about how to think about yourselves. And you, I know you're a fan of personal growth, a, a poor excellence. Um, get counseling, but find cultural respectful counseling. Not everybody understands yes. what life yes. is like. And that's part of the loneliness of medical family life is yeah. uh, my, my neighbors think their stress is the same as ours. Plus my neighbors think we're living the cushy lives of rich doctors' families. We did a survey. We've done a number of surveys through the American Medical Association Alliance over the years. We worked a bunch with MAA and the one we did a few years ago, over 80% of doctors' spouses said, that phrase. My neighbors think we live in the comfortable life of a rich doctor's family. They have no idea what we're going through, much less in these COVID era times. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's much more than just working hard. (laughs) And then from a mental health standpoint or coaching or counseling or marriage or family growth, it's much more than just communicating better or Mm -hmm. spending more time together. We've got to update our mental maps about the nobility of of the journey that we're on and have a pride of survivorship and uh, get out of that internal beating ourselves to death and sometimes beating each other to death with blaming or shaming messages. Nobody ever grows being blamed or shamed. We just learn to feel ashamed and blamed. Well, you've, you've, you've spanned, as you said, four decades of, experience and you've seen the changes and 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 the changes not just in the medical profession but also you know in in our society and 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 all that what what is your perspective regarding that four decade span on medical families and medical professionals and and what's changing and where are we at now that's a great question, Mike. When, when I lecture on this I always post okay we all know medicine has changed. How have you changed? If you really, really think about it and who you are today compared to 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Now, the sobering thing is, tell me something new you've learned about each of your family members in the last week. (laughs) Now, that is a gut punch for most of us because, oh, no, I got her all figured out or him all figured out or, you know, them all figured out early in the journey in, in we fail to update our understandings of each other. And that's when growth stops. Similarly, I would ask people, tell me something new you've learned about each of your partners in practice 
Because we found, I'm going to tell you, over the years, there's an integral relationship between interpersonal dynamics in the worst place and interpersonal dynamics at home. A causes B and B causes A. Now, to your point, a lot has changed in uh, medicine, but a whole bunch has changed in the uh, individual journeys of each of us over these decades, and a tremendous amount has changed both in the form and the structures and the processes and the expectations that define medical family life. However, you're defining medical family life. As a single parent, as the doctor in uh, her husband when he's not a physician, the doctor in his wife when she's not a physician, or the doctors or other two uh, income, in, income couples. Now, one of the big changes is implied in what I just said. Women have entered the workforce. Over 70% of people who work in healthcare across disciplines are female. You know, we talk about how important it is for us to embrace cultural diversity, and it is. And I've been saying for a long time, the biggest challenge to cultural diversity, cultural competence, being able to work with people of different belief systems and different backgrounds. And so the biggest challenge to cultural competence is between the genders. And we still got a long ways to go. Well, so women have entered the workforce. That is that is shifted uh, a, a lot uh, uh, for the work-life um, integration challenges for these this subset of high-performing women. And uh, women physicians are not the exception to many of the rules that apply to other professional women. Um, but have some extraordinary challenges that are unique to women physicians also. The second change that has happened is that family has entered the hearts of men across all uh, decades of, of male physicians in America. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I first reviewed this literature is in uh, the, the early 80s, one of the best studies we had asked, are you stressed by work-family uh, juggling? Only 15% of physicians said yes, they were stressed in 1973. It was, it was, the study was from 1973. They weren't not as predominantly male physicians, of course. They weren't stressed. They just worked. They just worked, yeah. They, had, they didn't have cognitive dissonance about it. Over 80% of physicians today say that work, family, juggling is my main stressor, my main stress factor. If we, if we look at, because the expectation of what it takes to be good enough as a man or a woman in my family, and that applies to both men and women, but the expectation has elevated. Uh, because uh, I, we have have developed richer and more diverse roles, we need to have, you know, a good a personal relationship. We need to have good family relationships across generations. Uh, we need to have our fair share of romance, and we need to have mind, body, spiritual health. It's like we're juggling four balls. In I've heard it time and time and time again. Mid career and late career male physicians saying. While I used to criticize my young physician colleagues because they wanted to trade time for money and not be on call as much and so forth, uh, 20 years have gone by. And now I'm finding myself thinking, you know, they got it right in some ways because they want to attend their kids' ball games. And I missed all my kids' ball games. Old, mm -hmm. A 65-year-old mm -hmm. doc told me recently. But here's the deal. It, you know, if they're attending their their children's ball games, and I want to attend my grandchildren's ball games, who's going to see the patients? You know, so we got this. We got at every decade, or in within marriages, we've hate, we made the unholy bargain oftentimes of, look, if we just wait until a little while longer, then we're going to have better balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, wait until whatever that next step. We have, I finished training, or I pass my boards. And men and women make this deal with themselves and with each other, and it's like making a deal with the devil because it, the, all the work never gets done. It well, then we done. get we get midlife ish. We get beyond 50, 55 ish, and beyond. And I, if I heard it once, I've heard it thousands of times. I don't know if I've gotten tired of. I've gotten 
uh, lazy, if I've gotten burned right. out, if I've gotten it's depressed. A, it's, a, it's, the, it's the old blame yourself sort of Blame thing. myself. Yeah. yeah. But then also, well, maybe, or if I've just gotten uh, resourceful enough or wise enough to say, but, you know, it's time. It's time for me to claim more, uh, more of a life. So the second factor that has changed is that women have entered the workforce. Secondly, men have entered the, the men, women, women have entered the medical workforce. Secondly, women, uh, family has entered the hearts of men. Family has always been in the hearts of women in, in terms of driving things. But then the third change that has happened, Michael, is, is that non-physician female spouses doctor's wives, if you will. And, and you and I both are passionate about being respectful of cultural diversity. We realize that not everybody listening to this podcast is living a traditional lifestyle in a traditional relationship. Now, about 80% of physicians do marry in a traditional relationship. In best statistics, we have about 85% become parents. So audience, please give us some poetic license. We, we appreciate we, uh, there, there's diversity. Um, the, the non-physician life mate of, of uh, male physicians, the other change that has happened in the last 20 years is they work outside the home more than ever. When we did a, a national survey and when we do a research, national surveys, we always we, we, we have physicians as a sample of people and we make them burnout inventories and work-life inventories and all these things that we measure. But we always ask, do you have a committed covenant relationship? Do you have a life partner? And if so, we survey the life partner also. And uh, the first uh, national survey we did of physician life partners, about 30% of them worked outside the home. This was about 15 years ago for pay. The last one we did, which was about six or seven years ago, uh, upwards of 65% of doctors' wives work outside the home. About 28 to 30 hours a week was the, was the modal uh, number of hours a week. So that's a big shift in, in, the, in both the structure of uh, family. So there have been some changes in structure. There have been some changes in psychology. Mm-hmm. The other change that has happened, and this is an unfortunate change, is for both male and female physicians, there is more work ambivalence today than ever. That's been an an unintended uh, iatrogenic consequence of uh, some well-intended work by a a handful of us, but I blame myself too, because we inadvertently promoted work shaming and we didn't mean to. Can you, uh, we need to elaborate on this ambivalence thing because sure. Um, it's been my experience in, in this wonderful book uh, I'm reading, uh, 4,000 Weeks, the, the Mortal's Guide to Time Management. Uh, ambivalence is a topic that comes up in there. I don't know the terms it ambivalence per se, but it's, it's uh, this sense of uh, there's so many, you know, there's this rocks in the jar parable, right? Yeah. And you, you, you know, the idea is, you know, you got to pick your boulders first and put them in there, the big things that are most important to you, and then fill it up with all the little activities in life, little pebbles and sand, and then your jar gets full. The problem in this new modern era is that there are just too many boulders. Right. Uh, and, and I think this gets at the heart of what you're talking about. So we have all these boulders, things that I can be doing, I, I feel like I should be doing, I need to pay attention to. Uh, and that creates a sense of ambivalence and anxiety. And I, I just know, I mean, in a sense, when you, when you commit to a relationship, when you commit deeply to something, you know, it, everything changes, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so psychologically, everything changes. It, it, it really is a remarkable phenomenon. So talk to us about this ambivalence and the pernicious impact that it's having on, on, on physicians and their families. Sure. I've been uh, interested in resilience for 40 years. Who gets through hard times comes out stronger, having gone through those. And more recently, I'm adding the footnote, it's really all about stamina. What are the tactics and strategies for sustaining you know, physical and emotional and mental energy? And in both arenas, for individuals, couples of all sorts, families of all forms, the key 
to high performance is unambivalent engagement. If you're, if you're ambivalent about, if I'm ambivalent about this interview, I'm not going to do as good a job as if I am what I am. I'm just excited to be here and, you know, with an open mind and open heart. And I like you and like working with, you know, well, what happened along the way is captured in this punchline. I started saying this right before the pandemic hit. I'd said for a couple of years, I've spent the first 40 years of my career helping uh, create and propagate two concepts. I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to correct because we've had iatrogenic effect. The attempted solution perpetuated uh, some problems. Mm -hmm. The first concept was the mythical balanced life. Now, those of us who came of age in the late 60s, early 70s, it was a good thing to say, hey, we can have it all. Women, you can have it all. Of course, life's about love and work. You want work also. Men, you can have it all. Of course, you want love too. You can have, you can have, you can have it all. But then we kept adding balls. You also got to have your yoga class. You got to have time for pause. You got to have your hobbies. You got to have your on and on and on. This is what I was talking about. Those boulders. You just those boulders. That's exactly it. We, we deemed the two, so many things more important than any prior decade of people, people have, have deemed. Now, what the well-being research says very, very clearly, there are two primary factors that correlate from teenage years to the day we die with high levels of well-being. One, work that I'm engaged in with passion and conviction. Now, it doesn't have to be work for pay, but if you study who ages well post-retirement uh, from their formal, they continue to have purposeful work. Meaning, and then the meaning second, in life. Yeah, in, in, in life. Meaning, because yeah. meaning, meaning is the antidote to distress. And I, yes. There's meaning in my volunteerism or there's meaning right. in my helping my neighbor. There's meaning in this. I take seriously this hobby that I have, whatever it is, that, but there's work. And then the second thing, I get loving support from people I care about for doing that work. I don't get shamed about it. Mm-hmm. And then also I have loving connection. You know, Sigmund yeah. Freud said life's about love and work. Might be the only thing Sigmund got right in his cocaine induced haze, <laughs> but he nailed that sucker. <laughs> no question, that's true. Uh, so what has happened is we created this mythical balanced life and it's become like a birthright. And the only guarantee, if you have a simplistic notion of balance, is you're going to feel anxious and guilty no matter where you are because of where you're not. Yes. I'm loving my work, but I feel anxious or guilty because I'm not having a date tonight. I'm anxious or guilty. I'm on my date, but I'm not with the kids. Or grand- I, 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 I love my yoga class, but I feel anxious or guilty because I'm not. There's too much to do in, in all these other things. So the mythical balanced life supercharges kind of a new age guilt that really uh, further fertilizes chronic struggles for well-being for surgeons and physicians and infuse burnout. Now that gets us to our second concept we help create and propagate that we got to correct. We've created burnout hysteria, I call it, that anything you focus on magnifies. And as a, as a group of thought leaders, there, there are you know, a handful of us who have been talking about this stuff. We need to end the conspiracy of silence where we normalize biopsychosocial deviancy in medicine. You, we, we normalize you not taking care of yourself. You don't talk about this soft stuff that your yeah, podcast is all about. Conspiracy of silence, yeah. Conspiracy of silence, right. And so we've shattered that. We've ended it, but, but just like any... Any uh, initiative, if we, if we look at what happened with Institute of Healthcare improvement in uh, we're going to uh, move toward saving lives by having metrics measure quality and safety, uh, and, and uh, people like Don Berwick and, and Jim Rearstein drove that. Well, 10 years later, they're saying, you know, one of the biggest threats to quality and safety is we got so doggone many metrics. People are so busy connecting things there. You know, depend, but that's how social yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's how social yeah. change happens. And so right. similarly with it's good that we've entered the conspiracy of silence. But what we focus on magnifies if for fear, I'm gonna tell you how bad this has gotten for fear of imbalance or burnout, people then start holding back. And right. if we hold back as opposed to engage, we don't get great outcomes. 
we only enjoy things that we do very well. If we don't get good outcomes, we're in a lousy mood. Now, here's where it gets crucial, this burnout hysteria cycle. If due to lack of engagement, you failed to enjoy the people you're working with and you didn't get good outcomes, you go home in a lousy mood, then in our research, far more, a very crucial thing happens, which is your family takes a position against the work that's making you feel so badly. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, it, far more important than the number of hours you work, short of working 90 hours a week, it will be your mood when you come home from work in determining how the people you love relate to what place work has in your life. We've got a lot of data on medical family life in, in the correlates between happy we're in medicine families and we, you know, medicine is like the angry mistress who constantly pulls my life partner away from me and we resent medicine. The crucial determiner there is the physician's mood when you come home. There's an inverse relationship we find it time and time again. People who love you, including your children, tank in their satisfaction with a life in a medical family inversely with how frequently you come home angry about work gossiping negatively about people at work, bad-mouthing people in the workplace are freaked out about what's happening in healthcare. And then your lousy mood and attitude toward your work shapes your family's lousy attitude toward your work, affects your attitude toward your work. You go back to work the next day, and then the whole rock and roll downward spiral happens again. So the mythical balanced life and burnout hysteria are two things we got to guard against because they create the final common pathway, which is ambivalence. If I am holding back, thinking I'm going to do some good, all I'm doing is perpetuating a You got to, with robustness, with passion, just as you did when you, if you look back on your career, those times when I just, I was all in, man. I was so delighted. To, I was scared, but I was delighted to be in this residence. I wanted to become a CT surgeon. I wanted to do whatever it is that I was going to do. You weren't ambivalent about it in all probability. No, the way people great. ruin, yeah, yeah. you feel great. The way people ruin uh, the, their endeavors is with ambivalence. You know, if you yeah. and I have a little tension between us and I start thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure about Mike. Now I start holding back from full engagement with you. It's not the problem that creates the downward spiral in our relationship. It's the response to that, that response, that response of being ambivalent. Yeah. You start holding back. That's so crucial. So there's, there's, a, there's a couple of points here I just want to really emphasize. And that is, um, you know, there are choices to be made. And you said we've got all these boulders and pebbles. And, and this is really highlighted in that book, 4,000 Weeks. You have to make real clear choices and commitments to what you want to do. And that relieves the ambivalence about work. But, and you know, here's a story. There's a professor at the University of Minnesota who, uh, you know, he talked about why he liked his academic career. He'd do two or three big cases a week. Uh, then he'd sit in his office and think and write papers. And that was his life, you know, and he got paid well for those big cases. And there wasn't the flood of all this modern world coming at him and email and all the other stuff, which can so dilute our, our sort of full-on engagement and commitment to it. And I, I right. think this is a, another pernicious problem that's influencing us dramatically. And so how, how do we contend with that aspect of full-on engagement uh, when, we're, when we're facing a flood of really crap we don't like doing and and, and, and it's, it's, it, it wears us out because it's, it's well, it, 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 in living in the real world, uh, it's um, so much of what a physician is called to do week to week, uh, day to day, doesn't pull from your sweet spot. If you, if you picture a graph high on the, on the uh, vertical axis is skill level on the horizontal is passion. Um, you want to be in that upper right-hand quadrant, right? Um, as as life goes, Dan Sullivan said, that's your unique ability. I've got high skill and high passion for this. Now, if you if you if you if you can protect twenty percent or so of your time to do that professional activity, it re-energizes you. Yeah. 
Yeah, the 20% is a good number. Anticipatory joy. While I'm in it, I'm in flow. I'm in an altered state of calm. Doing that certain kind of surgery. Afterward, I talk about it. I think about it. It's a positive emotional contagion. And it rides you you through. The data there are so robust. It's all like if you can give somebody their 20%, they can tolerate doing anything. Probably 80% of the time. Now, similarly for couples and families, it's very, very important going back to your, your boulder, uh, that classic boulder analogy is very important to stay clear on, you know, who, who are you at this, this stage of your life? I, I make my living in a lot of ways in doing coaching with, with people and training with people saying, listen, regularly, you know, memorize these three questions and ask yourself these regularly and answer them honestly. And your answers are going to shift if you're honest. Number one, who am I? That is, what is of most importance to you? What are your deepest passions? What are your deepest values, both personally and professionally? What are your your deepest strengths? Secondly, what is the situation you find yourself in? Third, what does a person like you, answers to question one, do in a situation like this? Mm -hmm. Now, I'll give you an example of how this relates to medical family life. I'm working with a with a guy now and his organization has mandated that he get board certified or reboarded. Uh, his deepest values are, uh, you know, he grew up in, a, in a, a tough environment, but he wants to be a better dad than his dad ever was for him. His spouse is complaining, uh, who she also is a physician, just complaining, we don't have enough intimacy, we don't have enough connection in our marriages, Rocky, that matters to him. He wants to stay employed. He loves his work. All those are answers to question number one. Question number two, what is the situation you find yourself in? Well, it's mandated. I got to pass my reboard. But also, you know, he's volunteering to be on 18 different committees. I'm overstating it somewhat. You know, the hospital is launching. This is really important. This is very important. So he's accustomed to being the person who says yes. He's accustomed to being the go-to hero. He's accustomed to being the first car in, last car out of the parking deck. He's accustomed to covering shifts for everybody else. Well, then the third question becomes, what does a person like you do in a situation like this? You've got to dare to find the courage to do something that is out of script. Yes. And that if you're going to protect, let's just say, your, your high performance and your stamina, or if you're going to protect your marriage and family, given your, you get to choose, you're all grown up, who do you want to be? But here's the deal, Lucille, you can't be it unless you act like it. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to be honest and authentic for 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 peer, early stage career is a time of work family imbalance. We all understand that. Right. But w- what you don't want to do is lock into what um, the, the the cautionary tale from from the first wave of writers about medical family life way back when, which is the beware the wait until mentality. Uh, the wait until mentality that that said, I'm going to wait to achieve this next. I'm going to wait until uh, well, you, when I lecture, I say, guess what? It's never going to happen that in the middle of a, a busy uh, clinic or or uh, a whole cadre of people show up and unfurl this uh, document. That's a petition signed by all your patients and your colleagues and loved ones saying, hey, Dr. Maddox, you deserve a break today. You have pleased enough people yeah. you have done enough that ain't going to happen you know so at some point we've got to have boundaries enough to clarify boundaries. who am i yeah. what is the situation i'm in and let me choose without ambivalence to engage in some things there is no extra time i have no extra energy that's a really humbling awareness for most yes. of us yes yes uh, particularly those of us who are accustomed to working harder than the next guy, outthinking the next uh, person or man or woman, uh, self-denying better than anyone else. If we're going to have meaningful relationships in our personal life, we've got to have appropriate boundaries and find a good enough solution. I understand the demands Not are endless, perfect, but a good enough solution. A good enough. Yeah. Good enough yeah. is as perfect as it gets. That's why in my resilience bank account uh, idea, even though I wasn't written in the original paper, the first habit, the, I, I feel like the most crucial one is that ability to set those boundaries and say no to things. Uh, and I, it's been, it was my experience, and I think it's fairly ubiquitous that 
surgical residency in the culture of the surgical world tends to, uh, you know, inculcate us with the say yes to everything habit. And, and we, we don't have a strategy for how to make decisions about what to say no to. Our ego can be involved. There's, there's a myriad of reasons why we might say yes to things. And we end up so overextended and doing things that really don't provide meaning to us. And, and as you said, in those three things to get very clear of who you are and, you know, where you find meaning and what you want to do with your time is just crucial. Well, in, in we could talk about, we do a whole other podcast on boundaries. Yeah. But we, yeah. in, in every book we've written, we've talked about, here's, here's a great secret from the other side of the couch in the coaching or counseling or our strengths office, doing the right thing defined as the more adaptive thing, as in, if I, if I cope these ways, if I think these ways, if I limit set these ways, I'm going to have a more adaptive outcome. If I do them in the other ways, it's maladaptive. Doing the adaptive thing is usually pretty simple and clear, but if it were that simple, everybody would do it. What sabotages us is this fact. Doing the adaptive thing usually doesn't feel good. It feels like right. you're playing hooky. It feels like yeah. you're cheating. It feels like you're being self-indulgent or so. You know it, Mike. You've been through recovery. How often has it felt totally congruent, natural, right? As opposed to I'm feeling kind of anxious. I'm feeling kind of do I dare take time to work out or dare take time to meditate or dare take time to say, do I dare say no and bear through my anxiety of getting out of script? That's, that's the, the ultimate, uh, you, you know, I, I say to, to physicians in medical families, and, and listen, I include spouses of physicians in this, in, in this regard, recognize you are extraordinary people. And, and this is not hyperbole. You're, you're smarter than 99% of people in the history of the world. That's true on IQ testing. You're, you're, or you're at least 90%, you work harder than any other cohort. We've say six-fold more physicians, actually 5.8-fold more physicians work 60-plus hours a week than any other profession we've studied. 22% work over 80 hours a week. As a cohort, no one works as hard as physicians do. And you're more hard-headed than 100% of people in the history of the universe. You're real good at doing anything you set your mind to doing. Yeah, you know? yes. You're good at going numb and getting screwed up. And you're also magnificently good at recovering once you take it seriously. And so and, and then, then the sub news is this. Extraordinary people don't marry knuckleheads. You're attracted to similarly high-powered people. We know this in this soft science world I live in. There are very few hard facts. But one hard fact is this. We know some stuff about mate selection. We tend to be attracted to people who are similar to ourselves, whether it's friends or people we want to do business with, certainly lovers or spouses. I tend to, I'm attracted to people who tend to think like I do, have similar sense of humor, similar value system. We even tend to be attracted to people who sort of look like us. The truth is, if you get well, rid of the is, secondary- ubiquitous human phenomenon. Yeah, yeah ubiquitous yeah. human phenomenon. You, yeah. you get rid of the secondary sexual characteristics and look at the engagement page <laughs> in the New York Times, you think, oh, they're all from South Louisiana. They're marrying their cousins. You know, <laughs> we all look alike. <laughs> um, well, so you high-performing docs, you didn't marry some knucklehead. Now, that's an important thing to bear in mind. You, you compassionate, loving, uh, non-physician spouses, you didn't marry some cold-hearted sucker who just happens to be a physician. Right. Some way or another, we lose sight of each other along the way, though. And, and that's, that's, that's with the track. We got to be able to we got to be able to stop the posturing and stop the labeling in in and see each other's kind of hearts and souls and dare to collectively bear through the anxiety we feel when we start creating some parameters that limit somewhat. I want to service my organization, service my patients and my groups, but I also need to claim my life. And that's the dance of, of growth from mid-career yes, on. I really want to focus just briefly on the dare to face the emotion, because this is so crucial. And uh, we, 
there's all sorts of little avoidance strategies in our worlds, our day-to-day, minute-to-minute worlds, the iPhone, it can be any number of things, but the anxiety that comes up around saying no to things and the guilt and all that stuff, that's why it's easier to sometimes just say yes. It feels easier in the moment. It is easier, right? It is easier. It absolutely right. is. But you pay the price later. You're, you're paying the price with your time later. And to be able to face that anxiety and it just, it, it goes away. You know, if you just face it and, and accept it and feel it. it That's a great, it's a great point. And one of our, one of our um, adages is any emotion that is accurately identified and appropriately expressed in a safe space dissipates. Just goes away. It is far, far easier said than done. You know, first of all, any emotion that is accurately identified. So let's talk about that. What is the number one symptom of uh, most prevalent symptom of clinical depression for women? Well, I can tell you, they come in the office, somebody like me and pop out crying. And I said, what are you going to do for, oh, I'm depressed. Oh, okay, it's easy to die. What is the number one symptom of clinical depression for men, particularly high-performing men? Anger. Anger. At the people they work with, and at the people they love with. You're the only one making me feel this way. Of course, you're the only ones I interact with other than superficially. It's that great book. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and then there's a there's a, uh, a second uh, part of that, which is I've got to appropriately express it. If I'm doing feeling substitutions, I'm not sad. I'm just angry. I'm not uh, uh, feeling ashamed. Uh, I'm feeling uh, frustrated, you know, I'm not feeling disappointed. I'm being, and so the, if you, if you study the dialogue of a second, a, a later life marriage, people get happier in their marriages as, as they age. And it's not because the structural things change so much. There are some structural change when we're less busy, that we have more space to uh, process stuff. But there are a lot of people who, who feel in that space because terrified of, of, of really actually identifying what they feel, think, need, or want, and bearing through the awkwardness of renegotiating lifestyle. Right. You know, it's not just a matter of saying no to the committee and no yeah. to work. It's also, I hear this in, in, in I, just last week, I was doing a, a program for physicians and their spouses, orthopedic surgeons and their spouses, and the topic came up. How do you navigate this fact that, uh, this is from a woman married to an orthopedic, a man, orthopedic surgeon, my husband has spent the last 35 years in the hospital. I've spent the last 35 years building a life for myself in this community. He is retiring and wants us to move to Florida. I don't want to move to Florida. Not like my husband, but yeah. I, he's yeah. just, he's leaving the hospital. I'm leaving the whole life. Yeah. And my you, people. You, yeah. And my people. So we've got to be able to deal with boundary setting and limit setting with, with, with each other. To your point, a lot of us, the, the less familiar we are with, all right, let, let's just identify this accurately and let's process. I don't have to take it away. I don't have to solve it. I don't have to, let me be, let me be interested in my own emotional experience. As opposed to keep doing what I learned to do in the course of medical training. Go numb, under-nurture myself, and then rant and rave at myself for my lack of perfection. Yeah. And if you're ranting and raving at yourself internally, you're going to rant and rave at other people. Yeah. There's a direct correlation between how self-compassionate you are, how much you treat yourself with interest, kindness, forgiveness, and acceptance, and how much you're able to do that in family life. The data here are robust. It's the people, it's, it, that self-compassion stuff doesn't make you weak and wimpy and whiny. It makes you far more resilient. It also makes you a better partner, a better leader, Absolutely. and more, you know, in, in a better Absolutely. parent and a better spouse. So. And the sooner we get this message out to young trainees, the better, uh, in my opinion. The sooner the better. But let me just say, the, the two footnote. Yeah, I, you know I agree with you, buddy. Yeah. But back to the burnout hysteria, here's what we got to guard against. I was asked to work with a group of residents uh, someplace uh, right before the pandemic. I said, okay, how come? Well, three of the first, this was in September, three of the first year residents are refusing to do some work. I said, what? Yeah. they, yeah." So I go work with these residents. 
and there's a room of 18 of them and there's three of them are three first year. They just got here like six weeks ago are refusing to do something. I said, what's the deal? And said, well, we read the literature, including some of yours. Mm-hmm. We understand burnout is a threat and we want to have better way. And we're in medical marriage. We want to have better work-life balance. And of course I had a good Wayne, bad Wayne moment there. The, the bad Wayne wanted to say, burnout, you've been here 12 minutes, get your butt to work for God's sake. Yeah, and earn the right to burn. I didn't say that. I want to say, yeah, yeah. I want to say it, but oh my God. Yeah. I said, you know, you know, yeah, yeah we worked hard to give them it. But here's the thing. Engagement is a, a key to That's well-being. Yeah. Now, you don't have to belong in this club, but if you want to belong in this club, it's very important to be engaged and find something good in it. And so you're in a good mood, blah, blah, blah. The second piece of this message, I think, the young, we've got to get out to young folks, Michael, is related to the fact that co- these courageous, incredibly capable and smart life mates of physicians and surgeons, they're going to fight the right fight, man. And they will fight you to the death to fight the right fight. You mess with their kids, you mess with their rights. Mm-hmm. Well, we, through the mistakes we've made, the mythical balanced life and burnout hysterica, We've distorted the right fight. The right fight is we need to participate in community. It used to be we would give a talk that was sponsored by a joint meeting of the county medical society and the medical staff of the hospital. We'd have a thousand people there. Many of, and I'm telling you, we've done thousands of those presentations. Many of those have just dwindled. And I'm defined, I do my work and I deal with my family in any uh, retreat in my department, we don't attend. Now, some boneheaded people say no life mates welcome. No, we work you to death, surgeon, and then we expect you to come on the, the corporate retreat and leave your family behind. Yeah. Or we've got a well-being, I've been invited to a thousand of these. We've got a well-being retreat, but no life mates are invited. Right. Come on, man. And so part of what we've got to do is recognize family. But then we've also there there are two sources of 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 diminished stamina for for uh, for people. When 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 the organization you work with fails to acknowledge family and even a little bit of acknowledgement diminishes physician burnout, a little bit of acknowledgement of, you know, we welcome the new faculty or, or new residents or new fellows and their life mates to a program talking about let's, let's build resilient medical families as we go forward. We did this with, with Harvard in Department of Orthopedic Surgery in diminished burnout rates for the, for the just a little bit of stuff. A little bit of stuff. But then the second piece is when family fails to honor the work uh, that each partner is doing. In this one too, we've got, we've got to convey each, the message. Each partner. Each, each partner. partner. That's exactly right. Partner. In yeah. our research. Each partner. With medical families, we found a, a direct correlation between uh, happiness in the in the marriage, whatever the form of the marriage was, it, with how frequently each partner expressed interest in the other partner's experience that day. It's not that we got to talk about all the details that we went, you know, how many diapers I changed or how many uh, surgeries I did, but you met a process. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, a family had tears in their eyes when they thanked me for doing surgery on their son. And that's reminding me of why I joined this rodeo. Or let me ask, you had lunch with your, with your law school friends in, in Adonami, two of them are partners and, and you, you put your law career aside to raise our kids. How was that for you? You know, if you don't ask your life mate about their experience in life, who's going to do it? That's one, one of the ways people end up having affairs. They find those safe spaces yeah, yeah. where people are, are interested in them. I, I, one thing I really would love you to kind of expand on a little bit is the look in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, we love okay. that concept. The, um, <laughs> it's really uh, true. Okay, this, so this, is, this, is a, this is a good signal about what's going on around you, how the world is perceiving you. Yeah, well, here's the, the backdrop of that is we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. You know, how, many, how often you have somebody said to you, don't get so angry and just say, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm just trying angry. to. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if we uh, if we get people who, who, who love us or work with us to rate us on variables 
like how good a listener we are, how good a driver we yeah, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. on and on. We grossly overrate ourselves compared to other people's rating. Well, given how crucial the quality of relationships are at work and at home uh-huh. to resilience and stamina, what can we do about this paradox that we don't see ourselves actually? Well, my wife, Mary, came up with this. You can tell by noticing the looks in their eyes that that at that nanosecond, when you walk in the room and you notice that the people in the room look up and your eyes meet, you see them looking at you. What does the look in their eyes tell you about who you are to the ones you love and work with? Now, you know that, Mike. You look, the, the question is not, who do you intend to be? We intend to be noble people. We intend to be good people. The problem is that stress tends to make narcissists of us all. We, we, we don't purposefully act rude. You know, if I, you're not working together and I step on your toe, I don't purposely fail to say sorry. I, I just don't notice you or your toe, nor your toe. You know, I'm just it's trying to so get from wrapped you. up. I'm so wrapped up. Well, the, the eyes, you know, do you see looking back a look that, that says, oh, goodness, uh, thank God our hero just arrived. Y'all, our safe space just walked in. A hard time just got better. You just arrived. Or do you see looking back excitement the looks of your children, your grandchildren, your life mate, your partners at work? Do you see looking back a look of, of joy? Yes, you just got here with all your grace and energy. A good day just got great. Or do you see looking back a skitterishness? In the eyes of your people, there's only a small handful of people in the history of the human race who are your people. What do the looks in their eyes tell you about who you are to the ones you love and work with? Now, I can tell you, um, this is one I try to practice that I preach. I mean, I just go through a day every now and then taking intentional note. How do people, even if it's the person trying to get in the elevator or the person in front of me who's fumbling to find the right credit card and they look back. Do they see looking back at them in a checkout line? Do they see looking back some self-righteous, haughty person? Or do they see looking back a, a kindness that says, hey, I've been there. That's all right. You know, it, it really, caring really connection matters. Yeah, it matters. Really caring connection separate. matters. It, it, it matters not just to be nice to other people, but when you caringly connect with other people, it blesses them, but it blesses you too. It's a primary kind of, uh, upward spiral of of energy of the sort that we need in order to stay resilient. So there's a lot. There's a lot so about much you know, to talk about here, yeah. how we how we think you know, about medical families. Yep. Yeah, you know, and just uh, on a just a personal note. I mean, I had to learn how to listen and be present, um, and with my family and with others. And the I, one of the other habits I think that the surgical world tends to inculcate us with is a fix everything habit. You know, you've got a solution or advice for everything because that's the nature. You're almost, it's, it's almost inbred into you. And it's a great skill until it's not, it doesn't work with relationships uh, I've found. Yeah. And my ability to listen and be present, uh, which was a hard skill for me to learn has transformed my relationships because it has created a safe space. And, you know, just recently, uh, you know, my daughter has had some struggles and she just came out uh one uh, just the other evening and walked up to me and put her arms around me and she just said thank you for being so kind and listening you know no you know and, that's, and i mean my god when, <laughs> listen buddy as it gets, that's you know? as good as it gets one of our concepts is related to this i want you to think about a dysfunctional legacy from which you come uh this is a rhetorical question uh, mm-hmm. uh personally i come from a long line of men who are women who learn to mistreat themselves or mistreat others in certain ways and uh, hold that thought. Think of mm-hmm. uh, professionally what dysfunctional legacies you come. Come from a long line of uh, physicians who learn to be treated this way and tolerated or treat others this way. Well, the question going back to my three questions: Who are you? What is the situation you find yourself in? What is a person like you do in a situation like this? What kind of man or woman do you choose to be? You're mm-hmm. all grown up. You get to choose. You got some blank chapters ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Well, one of our concepts is if you end a dysfunctional legacy, you justify your lifetime. And you ended that dysfunctional legacy, buddy, just based on that feedback your daughter gave you. Because yes, I, I know your personal journey and there wasn't a lot of nurturing daddies standing around listening to you. Uh, that's a great thing. One of the things we say to 
to is it possible to have a, be a, an extraordinarily busy physician or surgeon and have a healthy family life? The answer is hell yeah. Yes. It's not what happens at work. Well, it's what happens at work and whether it is fulfilling to you so that you're in a good mood and you go home, but it's not how much you work, it's how you use your time when you're not working. Now, there's some, you know, within reason, you can't just be a lost in the, in the weeds workaholic, but the question is, are you using the time, uh, your personal time, intentionally? Intentionally. intentionally. If you counter hassles with uplifts, it re-energizes relationships in your personal resilience, energy reserves. And you, so we say you're going to talk with, with people in your life about something. Talk with them about the evidence-based uplift. What new did you learn today? What are you grateful for? Let me tell you what I'm grateful for about today. You know, you're going to chat about it instead of us being on our screens over dinner or Netflix binging yet another series. I mean, I love doing that. But if you want to do relationship building, let's talk about what gave us hope that happened today or what is our image of a desired future. And as a family, articulate that. Uh, how what, what, what gives me a sense of awe and inspiration and a pride of, of survivorship? Let me tell you what I'm proud of about you. I was bragging about you today. Uh, what are small things that happen that that uh, leave me feeling loved by you? And come to think of it, could you tell me one thing I could do to make this a better day for you? That's a yeah. power question, man. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, so it, you know, let's laugh together. I mean, though, though is, is how you, if, as we study the families that are medical families uh, that are thriving relative to those who are, the ones who are miserable always blame it on the angry mistress that is working medicine that never goes away. And sometimes those uh, are miserable because there are no boundaries. There is no daring to say no or limit setting. Right. But just as frequently for every one person who works that much, let's say, uh, and is miserable in their family life, we can find three or four work that much more who are not miserable in their family life. And so, right. so then it gets interesting. But what are those other people doing? They're doing things like intentionally listening, as you said, or intentionally uh, harvesting, generating and relishing uplifts. Yeah. They're being very intentional about intentional. Uh, walking the talk to the, the, the answer to the question says, part of what I want to do is be a good husband, wife, father, lover, spouse, whatever it is, my parent, grandparent, who, who you want to be, as you've who said, you want to be, who you well, act like it. Yeah. 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 That, that is beautiful. And it, it reminds me of a, a, a kind of, I'm going to screw up the quote, but Don Kennedy, the former provost of Stanford, he, you know, his advice to somebody was, you know, you got to work like hell during the day doing something you care about. And then you got to really enjoy it with your family at the end of the day. You know, yeah, this is clearly the great two, advice, two realms, two realms. Great well, advice. Wayne, this has been fabulous. And one, one last thing, just remind us of what the hero is. And I, this is such a great concept. What is yeah, the hero? hero is someone who creates safe spaces for other people. Now, intuitively, that's about be generous and be gracious. Be generous with what you offer to other people, offer what matters to them, even though it's awkward to give that kind of attention, that kind of affirmation, that kind of encouragement. Be gracious in responding to what others bring, even if it's not your first choice in terms of right. you know, what they're interested in. The counterintuitive part of that definition of creating safe spaces, Michael, it gets back to boundaries. And it's about driving accountability. It's like the easy, it's like breathing oxygen for me to be nice to my wife, and my children, or grandchildren. Yes. Right. The courageous part that I sometimes falter is when I set to set limits. No, I don't love you so much. I'm going to let you play in the road. Right. Or <laughs> when I've got to say, no, you want to do that, but I don't want to do that. The, you, the safe space is only space safe if we fence in the playground. So, and that's what boundaries are about. Yeah. The easy part is saying yes, and in most physicians are incredibly sweet people. Yeah, yeah. But but what we've learned over the years is the terrifying thing is to dare to set limits and don't wait too long. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be exhausted. You don't have to be half dead in order to set limits. You can dare to set limits based on I'm going to feel better if I do this instead of that, so I can lovingly uh, set limits. Now that's that's you a lifetime challenge for me lovingly set limits. I think that's the key word. You can do it with love. 
Yeah, it could be there's a there's the, there's caring in clarity, as yeah. Brene Brown says. Yes, it's, it's, yes. it's clear. It's, it's not being uncaring. Yeah. It is. I'm being. I care too much to let us have sloppy boundaries because then I'm end up being resentful. Yes. Yeah. That's that's just beautiful. Well, Wayne, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. So much for your time and just the wealth of wisdom that you have garnered uh, over the years in your practice and and you're caring for us physicians and our families. Well, it's a privilege to work with you physicians and your families. And thank you so much for what you do. I know these are uniquely, uniquely difficult times uh, in a profession that's already uniquely challenged. So to the depths of me, I'm sincere when I say I admire you as a cohort of people. I'm I'm prejudiced in your, in your, your favor. I I, I truly am. And um, I thank you for the work you're doing, Mike. It makes a difference. Thank you very much. All right, if somebody wants to find you, where, where, what's the best way for them to look? The best, our our website is sotosotile.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. Great. Again, huge thanks. Uh, Talk to you later. Yep. This has been The Resilient Surgeon a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.